Kirk. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here at H&W, and I'm thrilled to be with you today uh, as we go to God's Word. There was a passage just read on the screen. If you're looking for that passage, Luke chapter 10 is where we'll find ourselves uh, this morning. Today, we celebrate the brilliance of Jesus. I think sometimes for me, I lose sight of or forget uh, his brilliance as a leader, that he is and was a brilliant leader, a brilliant mind. Uh, as the son of God, we believe he is the most brilliant mind to ever walk the earth. We believe that. And so today we celebrate that as we look at this passage. And I want to read it again for us as we get rolling today and then show you uh, what I'm talking about. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, uh, holds a parable. And these parables are told to help sort of unpack a larger truth, one that can feel very complex uh, in the context of a story so that whoever is listening, the intended audience, can understand what Jesus is getting at. It's a brilliant tool that he uses. So I want to read this particular passage again, the one that was just read. We can't get enough of the scriptures anyway, so let's read it again. And then my hope is that we can unpack it. Today. So starting in verse 25, it says this, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him and they beat him up and they fled, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, uh, bought, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, please take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. The word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these days when I get to come and open your word and discuss it with, um, with your church. Thank you for these people who've come. I pray a couple of things for them today. One, uh, I pray that you'd bring them um, a sense of expectation that they might have things to learn and grow from in your word today, from a passage that might uh, feel very familiar to some of them. But also pray for the men and women and teenagers and kids who are a lot like me, who struggle to listen for 30 minutes in 2022. Lord, I pray that those phones in their pocket could be put away for long enough for us to bring our attention to your greatness and your love and your goodness and your utter brilliance. We love you, Lord. Please speak through me. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
The passage begins, an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The thing I want to point out right away, just so that we're aware, is that this man is an expert, which means he likely knows a lot. People consider him, particularly in this day, to be a man of great and high standing in their midst. But not only that, he stood up to test Jesus. He has a very direct agenda for what he wants from this particular uh, meeting between he and Christ. And so he's come with an agenda. His agenda is to test Jesus. He asks him a question, and Jesus immediately uh, uses a tactic, I would call it like leadership judo, to where he uses the momentum of the question to actually turn the question around, ask another question in response to his question, uh, turning the tables, as Michael Scott would say, how the turn tables, right? He turns the tables on this particular individual and puts the ball back in his court with a question that should be very easy for him to answer. After all, he's an expert in the law. What's the law say? And look what he says. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What began as a test of Jesus is now a test for this uh, expert in the law. He answers the question. Jesus says back, You've answered correctly. He said, Do this and you will live. Now Jesus has his attention Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but great leaders have this tendency. When you walk into a meeting, you have one thing in mind, and when you leave, something altogether has happened. And the reason that it happens is because a leader knows what's best for you in some instances and also what's best for the organization. So you may come in with momentum headed this way, but a great leader knows to turn that in a different direction, to ask a different set of questions, because at the end of the day, what's important may not be what you want, it may be what you need. And in this particular instance, Jesus does this all the time, does the same thing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Right? The expert in the law comes in wanting one thing, but Jesus recognizes you need something much more than the answer to that particular question. And I'm going to give you what you need rather than what you want. Okay? And he kind of protests, but then Jesus tells a story. And I would remind you of this. These parables don't happen in isolation away from a context. There's a context to these stories that Jesus tells. And this particular story is told to an expert in the law. Jesus is trying to teach him specifically a lesson about life and about reality. I think in in some ways he's trying to hold a mirror up for this lawyer to show him who he really is. What he needs the most to see who he really is. So that Jesus can give him what he really needs and that is the kingdom of God. Okay. But remember, this parable, though it's applicable to us in so many ways, it was given to one man in history, directly to him, to help him learn a lesson that was so significant for him, okay? Listen to this story. Let's read it together again. We'll walk through it slowly this morning. And just so you know, I want to ring out this passage and then give you some application. That's the whole goal this morning, okay? So here we go. He said, you've answered correctly, told him, do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? So Jesus took up the question. It's like, okay, I'll answer your question. Here's a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, a couple of things that are important from that verse I want to point out. 
Number one are those very, very beginning words that Jesus used. Amen. Why is this important? Well, the question is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus' direct answer right away, before he does anything else, before he dives into the rest of the story, he gives the most nondescript, generic answer to that guy's question that could possibly be given. Who's my neighbor? A man. That's it. And in giving that kind of answer, what he's trying to portray to this guy is a couple things. One, your question's not that great of a question. Trying to figure out who your neighbor is and who your neighbor isn't isn't really a question that I'm that interested in. And so my response to your question is this. Oh, man. Right? It's so generic. Right? It's so indistinct that it could be anyone. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. You want to know who your neighbor is? It could be anyone. Right? In his head, he's thinking, there are people who are my neighbors, there are people that God's called me to love, and there are people that God's called me to hate, or at least people that God's called me to shun, and Jesus is very quickly just letting him know, in the same way that Bob Goff tells us in one of his books, your job is to love everybody always. That's it, right off the bat. And again, Jesus' brilliance, two words, a man, communicate that to the guy who's listening, okay? We continue on, it says, Who's my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. So let's talk about this road, okay? So I've heard pastors talk about this. Y'all been in church my whole life, so I've heard a lot of people preach on this passage. I've heard people call this the bloody road, that it was famous for being a place where this kind of stuff happened. I don't know if that's true. It may be true, and those guys are intelligent and smart to bring that up. I've heard people talk about how it's an important road because it's between Jerusalem and Jericho, and that would be important to the priests and the Levite because they would be coming from Jerusalem where they did their ritual duties, and then they would be ritually clean coming back to Jericho, and they wouldn't want to stop to help out the guy on the side of the road because if they dealt with his blood, then they would be ritually unclean, have to go back to Jerusalem and then walk to Jericho again, okay? So like it's a convenience thing. They don't want to get unclean. So again, that... Great scholarship, nothing wrong with that. I don't question any of it. But one thing that I learned this week that just stood out to me, and it was kind of like, I don't know if you watched the World Series when Lance McCullers was tipping his pitches really bad. Maybe tipping his pitches really bad. Excuse me. And by tipping pitches, what I mean is he was letting the batter know in the way that he was throwing the ball what was coming on, on each pitch. And they were re- reaping the benefits of that by hitting the ball a long way. Okay, so... I think Jesus is tipping his pitches here, and here's why. Reading some scholars this week, they talk about how the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is part of the journey that you would take from Jerusalem around Samaria to Galilee. Okay, and so this was really normal. In fact, we see in John chapter 3, um, no, John chapter 4, that Jesus rebels against this. But a lot of Jews, when they were walking to and from the northern and southern part of their sort of jurisdiction, they would go around Samaria. It was this, this little country or little province that was in that part of the world. It was one of their literal geographical neighbors. But there was a lot of angst between Samaritans and Jews, and so they'd just go around. 
Uh, it's important because in John chapter 4, Jesus goes through Samaria on this journey and he meets a woman at a well and has a conversation that a lot of people would have been completely freaked out about him having so that he can help this woman experience the kingdom of God and find out that satisfaction can only be found in him. Okay, so that's a different story, but is alluding to this same reality. And I think it's a, a pitch-tipping kind of situation because I think Jesus is sort of like hinting at the fact, hey, this is where I'm going. Hey, expert in the law, remember this road that goes around Samaria that takes you to Galilee? Let's talk about that for a second. I find it fascinating. Again, in his brilliance, Jesus is kind of hinting at it to start. Let's keep rolling. He gets beat up. He's left there on the side of the road, this nondescript man. Verse 31 says, a priest happened to be going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This is like parable 101. You say things that are pithy to get people to lean in and pay closer attention. So, of course, as Jesus is talking, he brings a, a, a priest who would be the highest regarded human being in this particular culture and a Levite who's a little lower than him. These religious men who people would expect morality from and pious living from. And these are the guys who see the man on the side of the road and choose to walk around and keep walking, okay? So Jesus, again, he's mentioning these things. See what he's doing to build an argument, right? He's causing the guy, this expert in the law, to lean in and ask the question, why would a priest and a Levite walk by someone on the side of the road? In the same way that when we read it, we lean in and ask, why would the religious people choose not to help the guy who's hurt on the side of the road? What is their religion actually good for, right? It's kind of the question it causes us to ask as we read the passage. Now, here's another interesting insight I picked up this week. A lot of people think that the, the next piece where the Samaritan is mentioned is like the hammer that drops, right? And I'll talk to you a little bit a bit about that in a second. But, but one bit of commentary I read this week that I thought was interesting said that there were definitely people in this day who would have heard the opening piece of this parable and thought, well, yeah, the institution is corrupt and it had, would have assumed that the third character was going to be a Jew, just like a common, everyday Jewish man who stopped and helped the guy on the side of the road. Right? And so it wouldn't have been totally out of the ordinary for them to hear the opening pieces, though I think it would have been pretty out of the ordinary for you to hear that a priest and a Levite didn't stop. I think that was intentional. But what's important is that next character that Jesus drops in. It's that Samaritan. Okay, so here's the thing. I know that there are many in this room who know about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. But for those who don't online or here in the room, I want to walk you through this a little bit. Because it's exceptionally important, not just for this story, but for our understanding of the New Testament as a whole, particularly the gospel. So let me walk you through this. In the 700s, the Assyrians came through, like many other empires, and they conquered the Jews. And again, like this, I think sometimes because we read it from a biblical perspective, we don't realize these are empires that are conquering a ton of, of different countries all over the world. They are coming into civilization and laying down the law and moving on to the next one. Okay, so when we're talking about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all these different people were coming in and they were building empires. And a part of building an empire, one of the big questions you had to ask was, how do we assimilate this group of people into our empire? 
We don't just want them to be here and then rebel in a few years. So how do we assimilate them? This is a big government question that these empires are having to ask. And here's how they did it with the Jews. So in the 700s, they come in. They conquer the northern empire of, of the Israelites. In the process, they ship off some of them and then they leave some there. But in order to make sure that they assimilate, they bring some of their citizens into that part of the world to intermarry with the Jews. So that it won't just be a pure-blooded Jewish country that's basically occupied, but it will actually assimilate into the Assyrian Empire. It makes sense, right? It's also incredibly cruel. And sometimes I think when we talk about Samaritans, we talk about how you know, they were the ones who were the half-bloods or the impure ones. The Jews didn't like them because they were different and they, they, um, they had betrayed or rebelled against the Lord. We have to remember that a large empire moved people into their country to intermarry with them. And you've got to know that that wasn't like a sweet little like, hey, if you guys want to intermarry, that'd be cool. But if you don't, like, it's no big deal. Go ahead, do your thing. Like, that's not how it worked in those days, friends. When an empire comes in, they bring force. And I don't, there's little kids in the room, so I don't need to unpack that for you. But you see where I'm going with that, right? When we say intermarry, it means something. So these people during this time intermarry with this other country, this other empire that's come in. And when it's all settled, the Jews hate this group of people named the Samaritans because they have mixed blood with this other nation. Right? Over time, their way of worshiping God changes pretty dramatically. And to be fair, like I think that the Jews are fair in saying that like they abandoned things about their beliefs that were wrong. But over time, those hundreds of years between when the Assyrians took over and when we get to our time now in our passage, it's important to remember that this group of people had been so marginalized by the Jews that it was ridiculous. Right? They did not like one another. There was real enmity between these two groups of people. And that's why Jews, when they traveled from the north to the south, went around Samaria. They didn't go through because they didn't want to interact with these people that they believed had an impure bloodline when they had a pure one. Okay, so it's really sad. This is a sad narrative in the, the story of Israel. But this is what brings us to this point. A guy that you would never believe if you were Jewish could possibly do something like this is the guy Jesus chooses to use as the hero of the story. That's really important. It's important to recognize that he is trying to pull out of this guy uh, or elicit a response from him that is severe. He wants him just like mind boggled going, what do I do with this information? And what's he do? The Samaritan on his journey, he comes up, he does the opposite of the priest and Levite. He takes care of the guy. He puts him in an inn. He pays the guy extra money, goes through unbelievable effort to take care of this uh, a man, this person that's fallen into the hands of the robbers. And then this question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? This is Jesus asking him. Right, again, remember, Jesus was, this guy meant to test Jesus and now Jesus is testing him. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, this is such a powerful verse, says, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Why is it important? Because he can't even say that it was a Samaritan. He can't even mention that the one who acted neighborly was a Samaritan. 
Here's what I meant at the beginning when I talked about a mirror. I I really believe this. Some people look at this passage and sort of uh, treat it like a parable meant to cause us to do random acts of kindness. And I think there's a lot of that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think the fundamental purpose of this parable is for Jesus to hold a mirror up to this guy and say, look at the bigotry in your life. Look. You are high and mighty. You think you're so great. You're the guy who knows the law, forwards and backwards. You're so intelligent, right? You're so powerful. You're all these things, and you're trying to justify yourself, and I need to show you that at the very end of the day, you're still a racist. You are. Look. You can't even say that the guy's a Samaritan because you hate him so much. And P.S., I mean, this is implied, but the Samaritans live next door. Literally, their country touches yours, but you don't treat them like a neighbor. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, everyone is your neighbor, and you have made the decision to delineate some who are and some who aren't, and I need to show you the error in your way so that you can be a part of the kingdom, so you can live into the kingdom like everybody else. Jesus is brilliant, right? Brilliant. And so the first application for us this morning is very simple, and that application is this. When we think about the world, are we thinking in terms of who is my neighbor and who is not? Who should I love and who should I not? Or are we thinking in terms of of everyone is my neighbor, how can I love them? Those are two very different realities. Let me say that one more time. Are we the kind of people who are looking out? Because I think this is a significant question in our day, in the world of Twitter, in the world of rage, where everybody's angry at everybody all the time, and we're polarized in all sorts of different ways. Are we asking the question, who's inside the circle of my love and who's out? Are we asking the question, how do I love all of these people because they're all in the circle? You guys see that? So let that sit. That's sat with me all week. And I'm like, oh. I think another question I've been asking this week of myself is how much time do I spend delineating between who I love and who I don't versus how can I love all these people around me that God's put in my life? I mean, that's a pretty humbling question for me. I don't know about for you. I feel like our culture spends an exorbitant amount of time figuring out who they shouldn't love. And Jesus would have us figure out how to love everybody that we meet. That's where our creative time should be spent. Okay, so that's application one. Here's a couple of more applications for you if you're taking notes, okay? So the first call is for us to look in the mirror. The second call is to action. Uh, If you look at the passage, there are an unbelievable number of of verbs in this passage. It's a very active passage. You actually don't have a lot of detail given to the characters, but you have a ton of detail given to what they do, right? You have these robbers who come and they beat the man, um, they strip him, they beat him, and then they fled. And then you have a priest who doesn't do a lot. He sees and passes by. You have a Levite who arrives, sees, and passes by. But then you have a Samaritan who comes up, saw the man, had compassion, went over to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on olive oil and wine. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Then the next day he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper, said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever else you spend. That's a lot of movement in the passage. There's a lot going on. And I think what it reminds me of is this. 
When you look at the actions, uh, or I'm sorry, you look at the words uh, that go along with the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, the word saw is used in all three instances, okay? But notice this. Only in the case of the Samaritan do we find someone who acts compassionately. Here's what I think is important for us to learn there. Compassion, as defined by so many in our world, has a lot to do with thinking and feeling. But in this passage, compassion is something that you do. Okay? We feel compassionately towards people who are hurting, but this particular passage is calling us to be a people who don't just feel compassionately, we act compassionately towards people. And then it goes a step further. I mean, this one really challenges me. Notice that it only took the robbers three verbs, three actions to accomplish the pummeling of this man, to leave him almost dead on the side of the road. But then it takes almost three times, if not three times as many actions on behalf of this particular Samaritan to bring about restoration. I would remind you of this this morning, y'all, and I think it is a powerful reality and reminder from this passage. It takes far more effort to bring restoration than it does to bring destruction in the world. Am I right? I mean, some of us have lived that, right? What took seconds in our life, someone doing something to us or us doing something has taken decades for us to deal with. That is the reality of human experience. It's the reality of living in a world that's fallen. And we just have to take note. This like blew me away this week as I was reading the passage. It takes so little time for the robbers to do their work of destruction, but it takes so much time and effort for the Samaritan to bring about the restoration that needs to happen. When Karen and I were in our 20s, um, we lived in Austin and there's a ministry there called Mobile Loves and Fishes that helps take care of the homeless community in Austin. I remember we were in a life group a lot like our life groups here, love those people. And we were in conversations with Mobile Loves and Fishes and just said, hey, how can we get involved with uh, serving and helping the homeless community? We were interested in it, idealistic 20-somethings, like we want to be involved. So we went and had a meeting and in that meeting, uh, the leader of that particular organization said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You are going to adopt a couple. Okay, so like, what does that mean? In my head, like, I just thought, like, we're going to feed them. We're going to make sure they have the clothes that they need. We're going to help them in different ways. And we're like, no, that's, that's all really good. But what we need you to do is they live in the woods right now. We need you to help them live in this temporary housing that we have uh, gotten for them. We need you to help the husband uh, go to work every day and make sure that he's at work every day, even though he doesn't really want to go to work every day. And we need you to make sure that the wife is doing the same. We need you to do all these things because they just had a kid. And if they don't take care of this child in a very specific way, CPS will take that kid and place it in foster care. So, I mean, we're all like, okay, we're going to go do a great thing for Jesus. And then we come to the realization, holy cow, this is what we have to do to actually help these people. And I tell you that story because I think my idealistic eyes were just opened. I was immature before then. My eyes were open to the reality that restoration takes so much more work than I think we're aware of. I think in our heads, we just think, man, 
I'm just going to go help those people, and it's going to be awesome, and then I'm going to ride off into the sunset. It just doesn't work that way. Our, our regeneration ministry can attest to that. There's a reason why there's 12 steps, right, and why it takes a long time to work through it. And I think one of the big takeaways for me from this particular passage this week was as Christians, we've got to come to terms with the fact that every day we got to wake up and roll up our sleeves and go to work. It just doesn't happen because we're alive and we smile at people, okay? We got to go to work. And if we want to bring redemption and restoration to this world, if we want to be kingdom people, let us come in with eyes that are open to what's real. If you're a teenager in the room, I need you to hear this uh, very, very directly from me. It's going to take a lot of work to help people whenever you make the decision to help somebody. But dadgummit, it's worth it. It's worth it because they're people that God loves. But don't go in with your eyes closed thinking it's going to be easy because it's not. And so we as people recognize from the story that we've been called to be like the Samaritan, but in order to do what the Samaritan's done, it takes work. And then the final application that I, I want to put before you today is this, that this passage is calling us to be a people who um, practice presence among those that we love. Here's what I mean. Steve and I struggled with why this passage should go in the Advent sermon um, canon, right? Why the passage on the bloody road with the bloody guy and the Samaritan, what does that have to do with Jesus? But man, this week as I was studying, it just dawned on me that this passage, even though it's to a man trying to convict him of uh, racism and ethnocentrism in his life, this passage also reminds us that Jesus has called us to be a people who don't love from afar, we love up close. We practice presence with people. And if you look back at the passage, it's just so important to notice the little words here and there. When you got the priest, it says, a priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Look at the next words. He went over to him. He was with him. I'll tell you, if there's ever been a story about presence, it's the story of Christmas. That God looked in on our suffering and pain. And instead of loving us from a distance, he came so close. Right, God with us. Lord came to dwell among us. And he inhabited that body in our world and he suffered and he struggled and he experienced pain on our behalf that you and I might have life. And that's the gospel at the end of the day. But it didn't happen from afar. It happened up close. Jesus came right there and he was with us. Such a significant piece of the Christian story that our God doesn't love us from afar. Our God loves us up close. And maybe I could remind some of you who are here today who are in the middle of it. You're struggling. God hasn't left you. In fact, he is closer than your next breath. He is right there with you, and not only is he with you, but he has altruistic, loving intentions for you and in your life. He is walking with you through whatever you're in right now. Please remember that today, church. Proximity matters. It matters in the Christmas story 
It matters in our life as well. I want to show you all a picture I saw this week. Can we throw that up there? So this week, we went up to Dallas and uh, did Thanksgiving. It was great. Got to see both sides of our family. And on Tuesday morning, I was walking around Allen, and I got lost because that's just kind of my deal. If you don't know me, I get lost a lot. Not great at directions, not, not even ashamed to say it, just is kind of part of who I am. But in getting lost, I was walking through this neighborhood and I passed this house and we've scrubbed the number off. I don't want any of y'all going over there and telling them that they're bad people or anything of that sort. But I walked past this house and kind of went a couple feet past it and then realized what I had just seen and then I went back to kind of take it in. So I want y'all to take this in with me, okay? Uh, and again, I don't know what these people have been through. I don't know what their experience in life has been, but I just wanted to show you. So over here on the right, you have this sign that says, love lives here. Exclamation point, exclamation point. So like, not a little love, like, y'all, love lives here. Two exclamation points worth, okay? It's a lot of love. And it says, love of God, love of fa uh, family, love of freedom, love of America, okay? So I, this isn't a political point. I just wanted to show you all this this morning. So you got that on one side, but then on the other side, you've got this sign that says, private property, no trespassing. <laughs> How ironic is that? That's amazing. <laughs> and again, I don't know why. I mean, those people might have had their house broken into and they felt like they had to put that up or maybe they just really hate the mailman. I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> Politics aside, I feel like that in many ways can at times be a metaphor for the church, for the way that we interact with the world. It's kind of like love lives here. We love everyone. Private property, keep out, right? <laughs> and it caused my, in my head, I just kind of thought like, Kind of like loving someone with a handout. Like, come on, I love you. Come on. I love you so much. Come spend time with me. You're the best. Come on. We love people so much here. Come on. Let's go. All right. You see that? And it convicted me this week that sometimes this is indicative of my life. Sometimes that picture is a picture of my life. And maybe you can relate as well. That you espouse things, like I believe these things. I believe love is the way. I believe that Jesus loves everyone. I believe that I should love everyone. But the way my life speaks, the way my actions speak, looks a lot like this, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago and I mentioned like you can make this, you can, you can come home, it just can't be here, right? Remember when we talked about that with the, parable of the prodigal son. I feel like it's just the same thing, right? I love you, but you need to stay way over here because I'm not comfortable with the pain and struggle that you bring and the mess that you bring. And I think we would be reminded and we'd be smart to remember that Jesus would have us bring people close. Amen. Have us bring people close. And is it messy? God, yes, so, so messy. Heck, we just had Thanksgiving. Like we know what proximity does to people. I mean, right? It gets messy really fast. But let us be reminded that the incarnation tells us that God was willing to come near and we ought to be willing to come near 
as well, to the pain and suffering of the world. I think I have a couple of buddies over here who are men in my life that I love, who love the Lord deeply, who uh, minister in prisons on a regular basis. And I know like these guys right here, they're spending the time to go to the place and erase the distance between themselves and the pain of the world so that people can know Jesus. And we respect and love you guys for that. Okay, we do. We respect and love you guys for that. I know this week, uh, before I left, I talked to Heather and Dustin Rasco. I don't know, are they here? Are you all in the room today? I don't know if they are, but um, talk to them about, like, these, these people, dear, dear people who are members of our church, lost their daughter in a battle with cancer last year. It was just this, like, I can't even imagine a more sad and painful reality. I mean, and I have so much respect for them just for waking up and going about their life. But on top of that, they created the, the, the Haley Rasco Foundation, which is basically them stepping back into that world and bringing uh, life and gifts and love and all these donations to these people who are in the same situation that they were in. And I'm like, that, that's the Good Samaritan. Like, I'm willing to step back into the pain that I lived in to bring people joy in the midst of their struggle and pain. And uh, y'all, that is what the gospel is. Proximity matters, church. It matters. It's one thing to have affection for someone from afar, but it's a whole different animal to take a step into someone's life who is struggling and deal with the mess of their life for long enough to make a difference. But I'm telling you, in our fast pace, get it done, get in, get out, all that kind of thing, kind of world, immediate gratification world, we as the church have to be a people who are committed to the long, slow process, not of putting Band-Aids on bullet holes, but actually bringing re- restoration to the lives of people, and it takes a while. And you gotta do it up close. Right? Good intentions don't get you there. But good actions do. Right? Man, my encouragement for you is to take that step. And I wanted to mention these people in our church who are doing this because this isn't just about making us feel bad. It's about us coming up with, uh, in, in tandem with the Holy Spirit, God, what, what issues and problems and pain in the world do you want me to step into? Right? It's not just about sitting around feeling bad about things. We as a church ought to take steps into the world in a way that are substantive, that bring about healing. What steps are we taking as we head towards the holidays, what steps can we take, right, to be an incarnational presence among people who are suffering? What steps can we take? I hope today as we leave this passage that it stays with you this week because my hope is that it would spur each and every one of us to do something, not just to be hearers of the word but doers of the word. And for some in the room who are already doing it, I hope that it encourages the daylights out of you and remind you that God's pleased with what you're doing. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Gosh, Lord, thank you for the brilliance of parables like these and the way that even though they were spoken to um, um, this particular one was spoken to a man thousands of years ago that has such implications for us today. In our day, with all of our problems, and so, Lord, I just pray, like, in the same way that I think Jesus desired for this expert in the law, I, 
pray you'd give us ears to hear this stuff. At a soul level, let it affect us, Lord. Not a sermon, but your word. God, call us to action. Call us to be an incarnational presence among somebody who's suffering. We don't have to solve everyone's problems, but just someone. Help us not to shy away from the pain in the world because it's so uncomfortable. Help us to, to bear one another's burdens. Lord, I pray for those in the room today who are just in the midst of this right now and it's so hard. I just ask, Lord, that you would give them the courage to keep going. Keep loving. Keep making those phone calls, sending those texts, even on days when they don't want to. Pray that you would encourage their hearts, that they would feel your affirmation of what they're doing. And know that it's good. Lord, I pray you draw us all into that. For those of us who are on the sideline, call us into the game. Make us a people of action. Make us an incarnational presence, same way that you are and the way you were in our world. Let us be a force for redemption and restoration in our world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So glad that you joined us online today at Houston Northwest Church, where our vision is to make Houston more like heaven by helping Houstonians become more like Jesus. If you have questions about following Jesus or would like to talk to someone about next steps in your spiritual journey, text Jesus to 281-946-6500. Connect with us throughout the week by following us on social and enjoy a great day.